touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And we have a hot item to talk to you about today. <laughs> this this is just indicative of how this entire podcast is going to go, isn't it? It's going to be a smoking episode. A scorcher. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about fire. You know, because uh, here's the thing. We wanted to look into camping gear and we did. And as we were doing it, we saw all these cool things about different fire starting technology. And and we thought, you know, it'd be kind of cool to, to talk about this. But the more we saw, the more we thought, well, this is just going to completely dominate this episode. This could, in fact, be a whole episode. And then wait a minute. We have the full power to make it an entire episode. So that's what we're going to do. So we did. So first of all, we should mention that fire, obviously, one of the most important discoveries that that early humans made. It's a pretty critical technology to yeah. human existence. Yeah, you could argue that because it's you know, technically part of a chemical reaction, maybe you don't call it a technology, but it plays an integral role in so much of our tech. Uh, and and certainly the technology that we use to create it. Yeah, I is, mean, that's technology. It's technological. Certainly. So we're going to cover everything from low-tech ways of making fire to some pretty uh, pretty high-tech and uh, terrifying, obviously. Ways to make fire. So we've spent a lot of human history, not we personally, humans as a general rule, have spent a lot of history learning of different ways to make fire, to control fire, to extinguish fire. We've had full episodes on firefighting technologies in the past. But what is fire? So this is part of that chemical reaction I was talking about. It's essentially a chemical reaction between oxygen and some sort of fuel source that has reached its ignition temperature. Uh, A.K.A. the temperature at which it will burn. Right. So when a a substance, whatever it may be, has reached that temperature, if it is in the presence of oxygen, it will burn and thus we get fire. Now, flames from a fire keep the fuel at its ignition temperature. That means the reaction becomes self-sustaining as long as you have fuel, which is, you know, that, that that's the dangerous thing about fire, right? This is a chemical reaction that's just going to continue until all the fuel is gone or you have otherwise found a way to extinguish it, perhaps by removing the oxygen from the environment or uh, dampening it with something. Yeah. So which lowers the temperature as well. Yeah. So this, this is the the obviously the very dangerous part about fires that you want to make sure that you have a controlled environment where you can control exactly how much fuel is being added to the fire. Mm-hmm to make sure you don't have a nasty situation pop up. Uh, though you mentioned ignition temperature, yeah. and technically any given fuel has two different ignition temperatures. That's true. There's the piloted ignition temperature. That's uh, how hot a fuel needs to be before it will catch fire in the presence of a spark. So it doesn't have to be as hot uh, as if, if you don't have any sparks there for an object to burst into flame in the presence of oxygen. Its temperature has to be much higher. That's the unpiloted ignition temperature. Right. That's so, kind of the spontaneous combustion sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, except that means a different thing. But but similar, similar, right. So, for instance, if you were to heat up uh, a piece of wood to a certain temperature and then hit it with a spark, it'll start to catch fire. You would have to heat it to a much higher temperature for it to just start burning. It's, Unto itself. Yeah. So... That, that's one thing we should point out. Now, granted, we're going to mostly be talking about piloted ignition temperatures because we're talking about helping things along by adding a little spark to it. And um, also something to remember that fuel that has a large surface area to volume ratio burns more readily, meaning that if you've got a lot of surface area 
and you don't have a lot of volume, you can heat up and get to that ignition temperature much faster than if you had a lot of bulk to you because that temperature could then be conducted away from the point of heat and it takes longer for you to actually get that to catch fire. Uh, also, as a fuel source itself, it's going to have more exposure to oxygen. Yes. And therefore. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, one of the many reasons why you want to use little bits of tinder before throwing logs onto a fire. I mean, it's the tinder is going to catch fire more easily and then you can start to build up from there. So going very, very basic. What is the most basic way early humans uh, interacted with fire? Finding some fire and then using it for stuff. Right. So this isn't so much making it. This is what is that big hot orange thing over there? Let's go check it out. I bet we can do something with that. Yeah. And the thing is, is that there's evidence that protohumans were deliberately controlling this natural found fire to do work for them as long as 1.5 million years ago. Right. So once you figure out, oh, this fire eats stuff. If we and keep, produces heat. Yeah, if we keep feeding it, it will stay around. If we stop feeding it, then it could go out. And we can kind of bring it over here if we want to. Yeah, yeah, we have to be real careful about that. But yeah, this, this is this is all before we had found ways to necessarily make it ourselves. It was just taking advantage of something that was found. You know, and of course, fires happen in nature for multiple reasons. Oh, sure. So, uh, but if we wanted to make it ourselves, in fact, this is something that we can still. Do this is what early humans did, and if you're really determined and you are patient, oh, you can do it too. People still do it today, sure. You can make fire through friction. So first, got to talk about friction. Friction is the resistance to the relative motion of two solid objects that are in contact with one another. So in other words, like if uh, I, we have a table here in front of us, I have my hand on the table. If I wanted to slide my hand across the table, first I have to put enough force to overcome this resistance to the motion, this friction. And even then, I'm going to feel the friction as my hand moves across the table. The, now, the actual amount of friction is usually proportional to the force pressing the surfaces of the two objects together. So if I'm pressing down really hard on the table and then try to move my hand, I'm going to encounter more friction than if I just very lightly had my hand on the table. Uh, obviously, friction can be things that, are, you know, an object... That's just on a flat surface. It's not moving at all. And maybe it's an inclined surface. And the the uh, the normal force, the force that's pressing the surfaces together would just be gravity in that case. But you can also have two different objects that are uh, experiencing friction against each other that aren't, you know, gravity is not the main force at play. That's right. also totally possible. Um, so the roughness of the surfaces also affects the amount of resistance that they have to moving against each other. That makes sense, right? If you're using a rough sandpaper against some wood, then it ends up feeling you can feel that resistance and you can feel the heat, certainly, mm -hmm. using that a little bit. If you use a really finely grained piece of sandpaper, the resistance isn't as much. You're, you're going to be able to move that paper a little more easily. Interestingly enough... <laughs> This only is true to a point. Uh, right. This this is relatively simplified because if you, as it turns out, okay, if you take two perfectly smooth sheets of metal. Yes. Like flawlessly smooth. Uh-huh. And you put them in a vacuum. Right. And you try to rub them against each other. Yeah. They, I, they adhere. They adhere. It's called I, cold welding. They actually, on a molecular level, adhere to one another. So at this point, you would think... Normally, if, you, if you're talking about perfectly smooth surfaces, 
you would think frictionless. You would think, oh, well, those things are just going to slide right off each other. But actually, the opposite is true. They will cold weld together on a molecular level. So just keep that in mind that when we're talking about friction, we are simplifying things. We're using a very kind of macro look at it. Uh, There's also the coefficient of friction. That's essentially the amount of resistance that you have, that ratio of the frictional resistance force to that normal force pressing together the two surfaces. So you're moving one object against another object, and some of that energy you put into moving the object goes to overcoming that friction, and that energy is not lost because you don't lose, lose energy. Yeah, you don't create or destroy it. You just convert it. It's converted into heat. Yes. So whatever heat, whatever energy would have been used overcoming that friction gets converted into heat. So when you rub two sticks together, those contacting surfaces start to heat up. And if you rub them together fast enough and for long enough, the dust or char that's given off by those sticks will grow hot enough to glow. And that becomes your coal. So the coal in this case is not coal like you would dig out of the ground. We're talking about an ember. Right. Something that is uh, so hot that it may be glowing, giving off light as well as heat. And then you would introduce that coal to tender to in order to, to get a flame going. And you can do this with sticks, although more frequently you'll have something like a board and a stick and you'll do a like a hand drill so that you drill a stick against the board and you start boring a hole. And as a as a result, the, the dust that's around the hole will get hot. And if it gets hot enough, it becomes a coal. Or you might have a piece of hardwood that's like a rod and some softwood that has a little trough dug in it. And you just rub the end of the rod through the trough rapidly. And that also will generate this very hot char that eventually will get hot enough for it to become a coal. And then you can light a fire. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it's really easy. This is not something that's necessarily easy. It actually takes a quite a bit of practice, usually. I mean, people who try it for the first time are rarely successful unless they have the careful guidance of an expert who has done it before. Because, you know, it, it, it's... It's, it can be exhausting. It takes a lot of patience and a lot of strength and endurance, um, especially if you don't have the technique down. If mm-hmm. you haven't built up calluses on your hands, it can also be painful. Oh, ow, yeah. yeah. But it is certainly a possible thing to do. People mm-hmm. do it all the time. You probably have seen television shows, whether they are fictional or documentaries, where people mm-hmm. have done this kind of method. And uh, YouTube is just full of instructional videos if you want to learn how to do this Absolutely. yourself. And you may be saying to yourself that, hey, this isn't really a technology. Yeah. Um, but there are a few, a few tricks or, or hacks or whatever you want to call it that you can use that will move it a little bit closer into the realm of technology, like adding a little bit of grit to the surface of the sticks to increase the friction between them. Right. Or creating a simple pulley system using a sturdy strap to help you to, to, to help make the movement easier. Right. So, I mean, like, like the bow method where you have the, the bow where the, the string is wrapped around one of the sticks and you use that to make the to spin it. Yeah. To spin it really, really fast. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this is, these are basic tools, but basic tools are the foundation of technology. Uh, yes. And we're not sure. I mean, not just us, but humanity in general is not sure how long we have been using this particular form of fire starting. We certainly because... have been doing it longer than we've been writing. Yes. And you know, at a certain point, sticks really don't hold up that well to the tests of time. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's one of those things where you can't really necessarily go back and uh, find find lots of evidence for exactly how you might be able to find evidence of a fire, but not necessarily know how they got it started. Right. You know, was this something that they used the whole rubbing sticks together thing or was this they found fire and brought it back? 
I think I think the oldest sticks that I've seen mentioned in a museum website were some four thousand years old, but that seems awfully young. Yeah, for, for this kind of thing, considering that you know we've been using fire in some form or another for more than a million years. Yeah. Uh, so then moving on to flint and steel, or other metals, or technically other minerals as well. Uh, you probably have heard of flint and steel, particularly if you play Minecraft, because it's one of the things you can make. So flint is a hard sedimentary rock, and it has a type of microcrystalline quartz structure to it. Uh, geologists call it chert. Uh, Which is just a great word. I call it I call it bob. Uh, no, it's been used in tool making for a while. Right? Some some two million years. Yeah. So it, it can break into very sharp pieces yes. due to that structure, that crystalline structure. So it makes really good knives or spear or arrowheads. Um, so it's been used in lots of different types of tools. And when you strike it against steel, uh, you end up getting this spark that's really good for a fire. And actually, my notes I wrote, Flint gives off a spark suitable for starting a fire. But that's not really true. It's actually the steel that's giving off the spark. Right. So here's the interesting thing. Now, th- this is going to be different when we talk about modern day lighters that use a very similar approach. But the idea is that you are creating a, the friction generated by the strike. You're trying to strike it from an angle. You know, it's not like direct on like slam iron against a piece of flint. You're, you're, you're doing this kind of angular motion. And the point is that you're trying to create friction uh, generated by the strike to knock off little pieces of steel. Or iron. I mean, steel really is is refined iron. Oh, right. Um, and and that works because the flint is harder than the steel. Yes. Uh, so you you will actually have the flint knock little pieces of steel off. Now those pieces are heated above the ignition temperature for iron, based on those tiny tiny um, particles that are getting knocked off. Again, we're talking about that surface area to volume ratio. Uh, right. The the ignition temperature of iron is actually very low. Yeah. Well. Comparatively. It, when you get it into the tiny little pieces, certainly. Uh, if you're looking at it in bulk, very high. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, you might be asking, well, uh, what else is going on here? Well, the presence of oxygen is what's allowing those pieces to heat up even more because iron has something called pyrophoricity. And you might say, what is pyrophoricity? It means that it will ignite in the presence of oxygen. Yeah. And you might say, wait a minute. I have a wrought iron fence. And I can't even remember a single day when it was on fire. It's super not on fire. Yeah, it is probably the least on fire thing <laughs> that's in my house or around my house. Uh, it's because that has a coat of iron oxide on it. So iron oxide also, we call that rust. But you know, iron uh, goes through this oxidation process. When you have it in bulk, the heat generated from that oxidation process means that the it can be conducted through the rest of the material. And that's why it doesn't heat up to a point where it, it gets it burns. Yeah, burst into flames. Yeah. But if it's a really, really small piece that is suddenly exposed to oxygen, then there's nowhere for that heat to go. It just ends up becoming this oxidized, super hot mass, super hot for its size anyway, uh, and can be very, uh, can essentially become molten, which then you can use to, uh, set fire or something. Yeah. Tinder. Tinder usually. Yes. Usually. Um, humans have been using this method for some four to 10,000 years, which means, of course, that, that the earliest flint based fire starters were not using steel at all, which was invented in the bronze and or iron age some, uh, you know, less than 4,000 years ago. Right. right? So, so the earlier stuff was using something else, right? Uh, iron pyrite, a.k.a. Ah. fool's gold. Uh, instruments of those types have been found dating back way farther. And and I did want to say that part of this technology 
is is really also a tender materials technology issue because as we have improved ways of creating tinder and carrying it and keeping it dry, we have been able to more effectively use flint and steel mm-hmm. to create fire. Uh, around the world, tinder has been made from everything from like simple bits of dried grass or bark to decaying tree fungus, which is apparently really effective at starting fires. I'm not sure. I've never tried it. Mm. Um, and it's been carried in everything from really ornate brass or enameled boxes to goat testicle leather. Okay. I I have no response to that. We're, I, we're learning things. I do remember watching, I think it was um, Survivor, uh, where the guy would end up getting a spark from flint and steel, essentially, and then lighting some tinder and then carrying a handful of smoking tinder to where he was going to light his fire. And the whole time I was thinking, please don't, please don't burn yourself, Mr. Nice Canadian man. Uh, and then, of course, he would make a, a fire, um, like a fire bundle, which would have uh-huh. a, a, tin, a smoking ember inside of it. And that would allow him to carry his fire with him to his next site, where he would then use that ember to help light the fire. And thus he wouldn't have to create a new A new coal. spark, right. Yeah. Uh, not all tinder is carried already on fire. Yes, um, some of it is just carried it, so that it's it pretty will... frequently just just kept very dry and safe. Right, right. <laughs> uh, at any rate, speaking of tinder, though, hey, there was a thing called the tinder pistol. So it was softer than regular pistols. It was a tinder pistol. No, no. This was in the 1600s. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was sort of a step between the flint and steel kits and, and lighters that okay. we have today. Okay, and they were converted flintlock pistols. They consist of the handle and trigger of a pistol uh, with a small tinderbox where the barrel of the pistol would be. Okay. Pulling the trigger would pull back the lid on the tinderbox and simultaneously engage the flintlock mechanism, which would send sparks into the tinder. And now we've talked a little bit on the show before about flintlock guns. It was in our 3D printed guns episode. Yep. We also have an episode from way, way back about the technology of 1510, where... Chris, Chris Paulette and I talked a lot about flintlock pistols in that one. So if you really want a full rundown on the flintlock, you can listen to that old episode of Tech Stuff. Uh, but a quick refresher, just because they're such elegant machines. Yeah. Um, so the flintlock pistol's hammer is actually a lever that holds a bit of flint at one end and is attached to a spring at the other end. Mm-hmm. And that spring connects to the gun's trigger. All right. So when you pull the trigger, it springs that the, the, the flint edge of the hammer into contact with a bit of steel called a frizzen, mm-hmm. which creates sparks, which light the material at hand. In a pistol, it would be gunpowder. And in our case, it is tinder. So you, you reload the spring by simply pulling back the hammer again. Interesting. Not, not difficult. Um, but these, these tinder pistols, though, were household items. They really weren't meant to be portable. And all the models that I've seen included these really heavy legs so that they could sit kind of elegantly on a table. Uh, flintlock pistols were really new and expensive in the early to mid-1600s. Yeah. So it was definitely a, a measure of wealth to own such a contraption just for lighting candles and your tobacco products and et cetera. Right, right. You know, uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about because I thought, you know, it's, again, a very simple technology that a lot of us take for granted, especially since... It's not that frequent that most of us come into contact with this anymore, uh, but it's just I want to talk about matches. And uh, the reason is because it's a cool use of our knowledge of friction and chemistry 
to be able to create fire in a manageable way, and it really made it much, much easier to produce fire. Now, they're relatively recent inventions, although the earliest uh, um, research dates all the way back to the late 17th century, 1680. And that's when a uh, philosopher, physicist, chemist, professional smart person named Robert Boyle began to experiment with phosphorus, uh, which is a pretty volatile material. And he coated a coarse piece of paper with phosphorus and then found that by moving a piece of wood coated in sulfur against that phosphorus coated paper, he could produce fire. You just had to move fast enough for the friction to generate the heat necessary to get above that ignition temperature. But his ingredients were also kind of toxic. So it wasn't really practical to make that as like this is the new fire starting technology of the 17th century. Yeah, no. So you get to a century later, 1780, French physicists invent the phosphoric candle. Now, this is super interesting to me because I can't imagine what it must have looked like to light something using this thing. It sounds very dramatic. Yeah. So imagine that you've got a piece of paper or some string. It's coated in wax and it's been tipped with phosphorus and sealed in a glass container. So you've got this glass container inside of which is this string or glass uh, or, or a paper. And then if you wanted to light the match, you would have to break the glass. Uh, because upon being exposed to air, the phosphorus would ignite and set fire to the paper and or string. Yeah. So in case of a need for fire, break glass. It's kind of the opposite of what we usually <laughs> see. Right. Yeah. Yeah, not, obviously not practical. Uh, very interesting, but not practical. Then <laughs> let's see if I can say this word uh, that that, as far as I know, didn't exist until this thing was invented. In 1805, you have the oxymuriated match. Also, Looks good to me. Yeah, it's also known as the instantaneous light box, which I think is a much nicer name. Uh, now, this was uh, also kind of a scary way to start a fire. So you, you would use little pieces of wood that had been treated chemically, uh, so that when exposed to sulfuric acid, which serious stuff there, but when so, exposed to sulfuric acid, the wood would burst into flame. Uh, so you dip these bits of wood into sulfuric acid yeah. and you create fire. This, why don't, why don't, why doesn't every child have, <laughs> yeah. have one of these? I think the sulfuric acid alone answers that question. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it was interesting. And again, this was all leading up to 1827 when a man named John Walker, an Englishman, invented the friction match, which were three inch long pieces of wood that were tipped with potassium chlorate, antimony sulfide, gum and starch. So drawing this match against any rough surface like sandpaper would cause these chemicals to mix. And because you had added heat from friction and oxygen would, from the air, they would end up bursting into flame. They hit that ignition uh, temperature and mm-hmm. then boom. And you also kind of get a lot of sputtering. Like this was a, you know, it was a little bit like a sparkler almost. Yeah. So one, one description I saw said it was kind of like a listening to a bunch of firecrackers go off, not as loud, but sure. you, know, you get those little, little bee popping noises. Yeah. And then, Pop uh, rocks. later on, you would see very similar matches coated with sulfur and white phosphorus, which could be struck pretty much anywhere, including like on clothing. So if you've ever watched movies or television shows where you have that person who just, you know, uses the match and rubs it really quickly against pretty much anything. Like their own beard or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tabletop. Essentially, that's these sorts of matches, uh, but also has some drawbacks. So remember that way back when Boyle was practicing with his, he had those toxic fumes given off. Same sort of thing. The gas given off in this ignition process was pretty toxic. So. 
Uh, in fact, there were uh, people who would market these um, these matches, and I think they were called Lucifers originally. And they said, "Don't breathe in the fumes." <laughs> yeah, oh, white white phosphorus is bad times. For yeah, that kind of thing. Not good. So here's uh, the question: We have those matches. You can light against practically any surface. Why can't we do that with a match that you buy today? Like you get a matchbook, you take a match out of the matchbook. Why is it that if I, I even if I try really hard to light it against coarse sandpaper, nothing happens? Because all of the chemicals needed to create the ignition are not on the head of the match. Some of them are in the strip of paper that you rub the match against uh-huh. on the back of the matchbook. Clever. So by limiting where I can strike the match, I make it safer to use. Right. Uh, obviously, if you were to introduce enough heat to any match, yes. then it was going to ignite. But on its own, it's not likely to do so unless you were, uh, again, like exposing it to flame or something like that. So like you say, the match divides up those those chemicals onto the striking surface and the match itself. So modern matches have chemicals that allow it to ignite evenly. So you don't get like that, that crazy Sputter. you know, sputtering. And uh, typically your match head has some quick burning chemicals like potassium chlorate on them. The box or matchbook has a strip containing some other chemical, usually something like red phosphorus, which does nice. not produce those toxic fumes that yeah. white phosphorus does. Yay. Yay. Yeah, which <laughs> very important, obviously. So, yeah, when you strike those matches, uh, the match to that that surface together, you get that chemical mix, you get the heat, you get the oxygen, you get fire. So super interesting to me that that's how those those um, developed. Then you have electric matches which are not at matches. They're, they're essentially coils of wire, and you run electricity through that coil of wire, and uh, the resistance of that wire means that you lose some of the electricity into the form of heat, which often with electronics is something that's really irritating, right? You, oh, yeah, yeah. You want to avoid that in, for example, your laptop. Yeah, you want to make sure that all of those pathways are as efficient as possible, that are it's generating as little heat as possible, so that way you're getting the most out of your your energy your that you're juice. pouring into it. Right. But if you're looking to create heat, you can very easily create a situation where you're going to make all of that resistance happen right. and build up as much heat as possible. Exactly. And then the wire will start to glow. It's giving off photons and, and it's really, really hot and you can ignite stuff with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have ever used a, a car cigarette lighter, that's essentially how these work. Which don't I, I don't think exist anymore in cars. Yeah. If you have an older car, maybe. Uh, I remember I burned myself quite badly on a car cigarette lighter because I remember my my I distinctly remember this. Uh, my father was telling me, like, this is hot. It's really, really hot. You don't want to touch this because it's hot. And as a kid, I thought, that's not hot. And I touched it. Not my dad's fault. Nope. Totally not my dad's no, that's fault. A, that's a life lesson right and, there. Uh, yeah, I learned my lesson. But dad wasn't trying to, like, you know, let him learn the hard way. He was actually trying to be very responsible I was the irresponsible jerk in that case. So I, I, th- want, I want to make that clear that my dad was not abusing me. <laughs> I, th- I think I think most humans have a have a hot things are hot story very much like that yeah, in their childhood so, somewhere. But this is the same principle that electric heating surfaces use, right? Like if you have an electric mm-hmm. stove, that kind of thing. It's essentially using resistance so that the uh, flow of electricity generates heat until you're able to do something with that, whether that's light a fire or cook your meal. So uh, that's what electric matches are. Uh, and they come in lots of different forms. Uh, not so much these days. I mean, a few of them do. Like uh, in our camping episode, I didn't mention it because I wanted to talk more about fire making in, 
in this episode, but I've seen a uh, portable electric match, essentially. It's really meant to start fires, even in a camping situation. But it's a, it's not really that different from a cigarette uh, lighter that in the old cars. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the same sort of thing. All right. So now we get up to, uh, oh, magnesium. Magnesium fire starters, right. Uh, sometimes also called fire steel. This is basically a really efficient form of a flint and steel mechanism. Um, you would draw a steel blade against a bit of magnesium or a magnesium alloy, which would create these super hot sparks. Ma- magnesium flames up around uh, 3,000 degrees Celsius. That's about 5,500 degrees Fahrenheit, Whew. which which makes it really useful for emergency situations, because first of all, that's a that's a very bright spark that it's producing. Right. And second of all, it's it's really combustible. It's going to combust what you need combusted. Yeah. No, no joke. All right. So now we're getting down to lighters like the butane lighters that, uh, you know, most of us are familiar with in some form or another. Uh, so they have a few important parts. One is the spark wheel which is made up of hardened steel wire. That's a little bit that you spin with your thumb. Yeah. Or fail to spin with your thumb in my case. I'm still really incapable of using lighters. Yeah. (laughs) I have very few occasions to use lighters, so it's not really something I do, but that's the case there. I'm fond of candles. I am too. I am too. I just happen to have one of the long Ah, mm wand-style lighters for that. So the wheel grinds against the material that's like flint. Some of them even call it flint. But most of these lighters have a man-made metallic material called ferrocerium in place of flint. Now, the flint being used in these lighters is different from flint and steel. That that kind of method is the flint that you would actually find out in rocks, you know, as actual it's rocks. Yeah, yeah. You, would, you would find it in the earth. Um, now, in that case, the flint is the thing, like we said earlier, that breaks off little pieces of steel and those heat up. And that's what you use to light your fire. Mm-hmm. With a lighter, it's the other way around. The steel is actually harder than this ferrocerium material, and it's the ferrocerium that is oxidizing, that's sparking. So the steel remains pretty much the way it is. This this so-called flint gets worn down over time because that's the stuff that's actually sparking. Yeah, uh, that's that's similar to the process in that magnesium right. bit that I was just talking about right. as well. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because it's the same basic principle. It's just... It depends on which material it is that's actually sparking. Uh, in this case, we also have a compressed spring that provides the pressure needed to hold that ferrocerium up against that wheel. You would imagine if you're using a lighter, then eventually you're starting to wear down that material because you're, you're knocking off little pieces of it that are, that's what's sparking. Ah, so you need the spring in order to keep the flint flush against the, 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 the steel exactly, bit. Exactly. Yeah. So this, the spring ve- very gradually extends as the flint gets worn down. Now, granted, it's not something that you would notice over, you know, unless over a long, long, long period of time. In fact, you're more likely to run out of fuel. With your lighter. Before you would run out of flint. Exactly. Yeah. And that fuel tends to be butane. Uh, you usually have a, a little uh, canister that's in the base of the lighter that contains the fuel. It is uh, controlled by valves. And when you press down on that little, usually red button, when you flick the, the wheel, that's what opens up the valve to allow butane to fly through. Now, because you have valves, because you have this controlled release of butane, and because we learned a fire will sustain itself as long as it has fuel because the flame is hot enough to keep it at that ignition temperature. Once you turn that wheel once, you're good. You just have to hold down that little button. That button. And right. as long as you have fuel, that, fl- that fire should stay lit. 
assuming you don't run into something like really high winds that interrupts that flow of fuel to the flame. So uh, obviously it was really important to design this in such a way where you weren't going to get any blowback with the fire. A right backdraft. Yeah. Would be bad want, times. You there. don't want anything like that. So. Not nearly as bad as the film. No, but. no. I have a soft spot in my heart for that movie. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it's an interesting technology. So we thought, where can we go from here? And uh, we thought about talking about uh, blowtorches, but uh, there's a lot to talk about with blowtorches. And there was a choice between blowtorches or our incredibly scary fire-producing technology. And we decided to go with scary. We decided that flamethrowers are really the way to go. Yeah. So uh, strap yourselves in, guys. We, c- we couldn't resist. First of all, weaponizing fire, not a new idea. I mean, you know, anyone who's seen the documentary Robin Hood knows Prince of Thieves, you know, that one uh, with Kevin Costner. Um, that one, obviously, they would use uh, flaming arrows. But we've been using actual kind of early flamethrower ideas for a very long time, like way back in 5th century BCE. Now, these were essentially tubes, like brass tubes, filled with uh, burning stuff. And a warrior would blow on one end of the tube, which would launch the burning stuff out of the other end of the tube, presumably at an enemy. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Now, when you get up to the 7th century CE, that's when the Byzantine Empire began to use Greek fire. This is terrifying stuff to read about. And we don't actually know what it was made of. No, we have some suspicions that it was probably some sort of petroleum mix that had some other chemicals in it. But we don't know specifically the people who made this stuff were very, very secretive in it because obviously it was a, it was a, a I'll trade secrets. Sure. It was an advantage over all their enemies, right? Yeah. It is terrifying. Think of it. Think of being on uh, a ship in the seventh century and seeing streams of flame going into the sky from the walls of the city that you're trying to, to lay siege to. You might have some second thoughts, especially if you're in a wooden ship, which yes, you that, were at the time. That would definitely it's like, guys, I I foresee a problem. I am perhaps rethinking this idea. Yeah. So the way this would work again is they would have these brass tubes that would be connected to some sort of reservoir. Usually you would also have a pump that would pump mm-hmm. the liquid through the tube. Um, it was a single action pump, meaning it was only working on the downstroke. Okay. And then you would have some lucky person whose job it was to ignite the fuel when it came out of the tube. There were some people who actually suggested that it's possible the Greek fire would even ignite upon con- connecting with water, huh. which is interesting. It's not impossible that that is the case, but I there's the problem is there's no definitive account that tells right. us exactly how this worked. But it seems that there were more likely these warriors who would essentially hold a torch, light the end of this thing. Sounds like a really bad job. Yeah, not necessarily. You probably drew the short straw that day and uh, it would pump out this these flames. And once the pump had finished on its downstroke and goes back up again, the flames would stop because your fuel was cut off. And so the warrior would have to stay there in order to ignite the next stream. Uh, Chinese warriors copied this approach and improved upon it by using double bellows, which could pump out flammable liquid both on the upstroke and the downstroke of the bellows itself, because it had this this double action going on. So you had a continuous stream of flames coming at you. Definitely going to make you think twice before you try and storm their their ranks. Now, these items, these weapons were really scary. They're absolutely devastating, but they were not portable because they were usually connected to some sort of reservoir. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, we're not talking about like a personal weapon. This is something that's attached to a larger structure of some sort. And eventually something else came along that was way more effective as a, as a tool of war that essentially replaced flames for a good long time. And that would be gunpowder. Yeah. Gunpowder uh, certainly changed warfare dramatically. Everything from the era of the, the knights in armor to castles to this kind of uh, flame technology, all of that was sort of rendered moot once gunpowder came along. Mm-hmm. Although flamethrowers did, in fact, come back into warfare, uh, it would take it until about World War One. Yep. The German army began to introduce uh, flamethrowers into warfare. It wouldn't be till World World War Two that you'd see both Axis and Allied powers using this technology, and it was pretty terrifying stuff. Um, uh, because we we had the technology to make them portable. Yeah, this, now it became a personal weapon, not just Joking. something that was connected. Yeah, absolutely. So not all develop, developments in technology are things that we are necessarily like, hooray, yes, awesome. Some of them are like, wow, that is scary stuff. It's terrifying. It also looks really cool in video games. So yeah, also, I, I guess uh, at a certain point, I can't really argue. Movies with... like The Running Man. Sure. You know, Fireball. Fictional flamethrowers. I love fictional flamethrowers. Love them. Yeah, we, real ones are terrifying. John, Jonathan was a little bit upset, you guys, doing this research. Well, no, because I was reading about what would happen. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about burning fuel, flying at people. So, yeah. But to just focus on the technology and not the application of it. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. So these flamethrowers were different. They were portable. A single soldier could carry and operate one. And what it would consist of is a backpack that would essentially have three tanks on it. You have two fuel canisters and in between them, you would have a pressurized air canister. Oh, okay. So the fuel canisters, that's what has whatever the flammable liquid happens to be for your flamethrower. The pressurized air is what forces that fuel to go through the fuel lines and through the gun that you're holding. Now that fuel flows through to the gun and that's where you've got two triggers. Essentially one trigger is what allows the fuel to flow through. Right. And the other one is the igniter. Uh, and they had different igniters depending upon the era of flamethrower. Like the early ones used resistance coil, very similar to the electric matches we were talking about. So you just have this really hot uh, coil of wire. The the fuel would pass through it, essentially, or, or against it, and that would hit its ignition temperature. The flame would start. And of course, once the flame started, it was enough to keep that flame going. You could let go of the igniter at that point, just hold on to the fuel. Same sort of thing with the more modern ones, except they use spark plugs. So you've got a battery, and the battery provides electricity to the spark plug, which generates a spark. That's what allows the fuel to catch fire. And again, as long as you've got fuel going through the flamethrower, you're going to be shooting flames out. So interesting stuff. But, uh, you know, let's not stop there. You know, that that's terrifying all it's on, on its own. You see a soldier shooting flame out. That's very intimidating. Uh-huh. Uh, but you can also make very large mobile flamethrowers yeah. these days. Yeah, you could attach it to something like, I don't know, a tank. Now, the reason why it gets even more terrifying with a tank is that not only do you have this enormous armored vehicle bearing down at you, the pump in this vehicle is attached directly to its motor. So it's so, way so, more powerful. So the tank's engine, oh my goodness, yeah. is powering the flow of the fluid. Yes. So you can shoot it way further than you could with a handheld flamethrower. So you get the, the, the propulsion of fuel would go much further. And uh, obviously, again, a very effective intimidation tool, not to mention just an outright devastating weapon. So, yeah, uh, those are those are the methods that we wanted to cover about technology that makes flames. Obviously, we didn't cover other things like 
you can use light to make frames. Right. You could use lasers. You could use uh, you could use uh, lenses that focus light to a point. Mm-hmm. So there are other uh, options that we didn't cover. Maybe one day we'll do a second episode. Yeah, if uh, if any of you guys out there are kind of pyros yeah. and would like to hear more, then definitely let us know. Particularly if there is some method that you thought, hey, you know, I, I was hoping you were going to cover right. that, and we didn't. Let us know. Tell us what we missed, and we will uh, we will consider doing a second episode. And uh, I feel that we are justified in doing this episode only because we have done episodes about how fire engines work. We've done episodes on how the Boston fire uh, alarm system worked. You know, we have all of that kind of stuff. So this is responsible. We're being responsible. Responsible journalists. We have to tell both sides of the story. Clearly, uh, if I learned nothing from browsing through a journalism school's brochure, I learned that. So, guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, write in to us. Let us know. Our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 